Here's what I would like to do. We have been talking about the five solos or solas of the Reformation, which really converged 500 years ago. Literally 500 years ago this year, in the year 1519, Martin Luther had a debate and a discussion with Johann Eck about the primacy of Scripture. What a watershed event that was for the world and for Western Christianity. And that has made so much difference in our world. And so we have talked about solo scripture. We talked yesterday about solo faith. And this morning we're going to talk about solo grace. By grace alone we are saved. So... Here's your first homework assignment. I haven't given you, home, well, it's not really homework. It's right here. Turn to a neighbor and share with them the best definition of grace you've ever heard. Because grace, we're going to unpack this mysterious kind of word. So, ready? One, two, three. You have uh, two minutes to go. Ready? Go. If you've got a decent definition of grace... People are pulling out their phones. This is frightening. <laughs> Google will tell me. One more minute. Twenty seconds. Isn't that amazing? Like, I've pulled my phone out to look for the shortest way to get home. <laughs> and like, I know where I live. But you, like, when did we start getting so unsure of everything? Have you ever noticed that? Now that we can, <laughs> age, well, yeah, that's another thing. Oh, it's your birthday? Today? Two birthdays. Oh my gosh, who's, all right, whose birthday is it today? Daryl, raise your hand. Don't be shy. Well, we better sing. That's a graceful thing to do. Ready? Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear. Happy birthday to you. Anybody else have a birthday this week? There's three? Oh my gosh. Oh. Got it. <laughs> He's going to unfriend you. Facebook's good for one thing birthdays. Well, who here heard a good definition of grace? Unmerited favor. That's right. 
Whoa, God's riches at Christ's expense, which is unmerited favor for us, isn't it? Another one over here. I made it up. God's goodness overcoming my badness. <laughs> I love this. God's goodness overcoming my badness. If that ain't grace, I mean, not just your badness. <laughs> Anybody else hear something they hadn't heard before? You can squeal on your neighbor if they... Unconditional, unending. Get over it. Yes, what you got? I'm Jessica. Jessica, yeah. You don't get it, but you... That's all right. You don't deserve it, but you get it. You don't deserve it, but you get it. Do you know, when it comes to justice and mercy and grace, I heard a, a British speaker, Stephen Olford. Why is it that anybody who says anything with a British accent sounds brilliant? <laughs> he said, justice is getting what you deserve. He said, mercy is not getting what you deserve. And he said, grace is getting what you don't deserve. I thought that was kind of a good way uh, to distinguish them. And so we're going to look in the Bible at grace, because Martin Luther, when he rediscovered Christ, this brave, thoughtful, fiery young priest and professor who was not perfect and in his older age got a little weird, like some of us. Um, and he actually... Uh, put out some writings that were kind of anti-Semitic uh, against the Jews and the peasant revolt going on in Germany. And uh, so we are not espousing everything that Martin Luther ever put out, but he sure lit the fire for all of these reformations that were taking place in people's lives as they rediscovered by faith alone, by scripture alone, by grace alone. And that's what the Great Reformation is. It wasn't some movement that they made banners for and tried to get people to show up for. But when he was struggling with what Christianity is about, through prayer and through scripture, God opened his eyes that the just shall live by faith alone. And would you or I ever look intently in that direction, prayer and scripture? What gifts God has waiting for us? What grace God has waiting for us? Those definitions were so, so good. And here's one of the challenges for us in the church is um, there are killers on the loose today. The problem is that you can't recognize them. But these people, they kill freedom, they kill spontaneity, they kill creativity, they kill joy, as well as productivity. They kill with their words, they kill with their demeanor, and they even kill with their facial expressions sometimes. They kill with their attitudes far more than with their behavior. And the amazing thing is they get away with it, and many of them spend a good amount of time in churches. Because these killers, millions of people who should be free and productive people, are living their lives in shame and in fear and thus in intimidation. Some of the things that many of us wrote down that we wanted to unfollow this week and for the rest of our lives. Imagine being free from those things. But these people, these 
these grace killers, they're victims without even knowing it. They've never known that there is a truth that could set them free because of these grace killers. Millions more don't know what the gospel message is because the killers make it so the victims don't have a clue as to what they're missing. And what they're missing is grace. Exactly what we came up with. And here's the secret. We're so caught up in what's wrong with people, including ourselves. You know, I think we have three enemies. Scripture talks about Satan. He talks about the world is the enemy of the Christian and our own flesh. And most of us are so caught up in our own flesh, Satan can just leave us alone. Our fleshly desires, our fleshly wants, our fleshly attitudes and actions that Satan doesn't have to bother with us until we crucify the flesh and then he gets nervous. And the world that we fight against, to me, I heard somebody say years ago, and I don't even remember who it was, the world that we fight against are kind of the, the systems of the flesh all coming together. Gambling it would be something of the world that all of this greed and all this I want something for nothing combined came together to form what we call gambling. The, the whole um, <clears throat> porn industry takes all these fleshly desires and makes an industry out of it and people are making money and people are enslaved to it. It is not a victimless crime. Same thing goes with a lot of other things that keep some people under other people's feet. It's the world systems. And then obviously there's, the, there's Satan and the, the principalities and powers. But most of them can leave us alone because we are dead to grace. We're so caught up with what's wrong with people because there's something wrong with us. And we don't understand the grace by which God has come to us. So these tenets of the faith, by faith alone, through scripture alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, and for the glory of God alone. But there's one other thing I'm trying to slip in tomorrow or the next day, and that is another idea that was big in the Protestant Reformation, was called the priesthood of all believers, not just of the few that God called to be priests in terms of their vocation and their call in their life. So we're going to unpack that a little bit too. We'll squeeze it in. Why by grace alone? Grace is one of the most important words in Christianity. And it's not just in the New Testament. But it's also one of the most abused because we want to play some ethereal category of monks or of praying grandmas that they're the ones who deal with it. Because we don't understand it. And grace was meant to be received by you. One hundred you know, if we could only understand how loved we are. First John talks about how great the Father's love has been lavished on us. Lavished. That's the word that John uses in his letter of First John. If we could understand how lavished we are. And the truth is, grace is not an abstract word. It's kind of gotten into that category. 
And just like Martin Luther was awakened to God's grace, millions more through the Great Reformation, or millions more were awakened to God's grace, and they called it the Great Reformation. How many of us still are looking for what that Reformation means for us when they rediscovered Christ? I'm realizing I'm in constant need of grace and Reformation. Every day, his mercies are new. Every day, I'm just as dependent upon God as I was the day before I received his salvation in my life. Does that make sense? And God's grace is so much unmerited favor. God's grace is so good that it can take my bad, whether it's my bad after I received Christ or my bad before I received Christ. And God's grace is so good, he moves me along into greater and greater love for God and love for people. And God must have known that we needed this today because in the scriptures, he made it not the least bit abstract. It's very clear. And it's always connected with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can't talk about grace apart from him. It's not a thing. Grace is God's personal relationship with us, expressed to those around you. That's why we think, when I think of grace, I think of my grandma, my praying grandma, Florence Olson, my praying grandma. We can't talk about grace apart from Jesus. John the disciple reminds us, and if you go back to 1 John, which is one of my favorite chapters, That's where we're going to look at first. We'll pick it up. Uh, we talked yesterday when it came to faith, starting in verse 10. Though Jesus was in the world, though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. Remember the toy maker who gets attacked by his own toys. You know that, that episode of the Twilight Zone? Not first John, the Gospel of John. Yep, yep. Oh, did I say, maybe I said first we'll look at John or something. Oh, thank you for the grace. <laughs> to not be annoyed with me. <clears throat> Jesus was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. That would have been enough for me to be like, okay, I'm done with you. But God's grace um, is different. He came to that which was his own, the Jewish people. But his own did not receive him. Yet, and this is about the faith, to all who received him. Remember, that's, faith is on the receiving end. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Those three verbs, receive and believe. And then God does his part and we become children of God. Born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Now Luke takes about 2,000 words to tell the birth narrative about Jesus in Bethlehem. There's a guy in our church in Dexter who was um, born in Jerusalem and grew up in Bethlehem. And when I first met him, I thought he meant Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And then he had like 20 questions for me and he had a little bit of an accent. I'm like, you're not from Pennsylvania. <laughs> His name's Joseph, Joseph from Bethlehem. And uh, he... He uh, was born in Jerusalem, grew up in Bethlehem, and uh, um, it is so amazing to hear his insight into what's going on in Palestine and Israel, and he said the saddest thing of all is 
So many people there are dying without Jesus in the midst of that conflict. But as Luke takes 2,000 words to talk about the birth of Jesus, John does it in four. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, made his dwelling among us, literally pitched a tent. Anybody here tenting this week? Yes. That's what Jesus did for about 33 years. That's the word they're using. And made his dwelling among us, pitched his tent among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. You know, sometimes I think in our mixed up minds, we think about grace as something other than the truth. Like, oh, grace is just lovey-dovey kind of stuff. But notice that John doesn't say he, he came full of grace or truth. It's grace and truth. Grace is not something mushy. He says the law was given. Did we get that far? The law was given through Moses. Hold on, where am I? Oh, sorry, verse 14 still. So he's saying Jesus came to us full of grace, not just with a little to share, full on grace, full of grace and truth. And then verse 15, John testifies concerning him, and he's talking about John the Baptist. He cried out saying, this is the one of whom I said, he comes after me, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Because remember, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. From the fullness of his grace, we've all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Even the act of making Christ known to us is grace. You know, in his day, among all the leaders, Jesus stood out. And that's why, you, you know, the message of the first century was not, Jesus said, love your enemies. The message of the first century was, Jesus was the Messiah and we killed him and he rose from the dead. The resurrection didn't evolve. As you read in the earliest documents, the number one message of Christianity was Jesus Christ was die, died and rose again. They didn't evolve into the resurrection. That's why Easter is such a big deal for us. Because, because of who Jesus was, they paid attention to what he said. It wasn't that his message that he preached launched him out of the first century and on into the 21st century. It was the fact that there were eyewitnesses there. It wasn't like he died in Palestine and Jerusalem and then he rose again, but they started telling people in upstate New York about it. It happened and the message was being delivered right where anybody could have produced the body. And then they paid attention 
to what he said. John says in his day, among all the leaders, Jesus stood out. How? Grace. The apostle John wrote it. We beheld his glory full of grace and truth. And he says it. For of his fullness, we have all received. And many, many of us here this week have been on the receiving end of his grace. In spite of who we are. Grace upon grace. One blessing after another. Jesus stood alongside the woman caught in adultery in the face of those grace killers ready to throw stones. Jesus gave grace when his friend Lazarus died and Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, came and were fussing at Jesus for not coming earlier. They were blaming Jesus for their brother's death. Of course, in some ways they were right. Jesus broke up every funeral he ever went to. I love that Mary and Martha, the friends of Jesus, were fussing at him. As a pastor, that's very reassuring (laughs) when people fuss at me. Grace was a favorite theme when Jesus told stories. Or when Jesus graciously cared about children. When his own disciples are like, get him out of here. Where's the Lord's lamb flag? Get him out of here. No. (laughs) That is offering grace to the parents of those children. (laughs) When that flag shows up. (laughs) Yeah, his own disciples are like, get him out of here. And Jesus is like, come on, you guys, bring him on. Jesus loved telling stories about grace. He spoke about the prodigal son in grace. The prodigal son, you know, mercy would have been after the son, justice would have been the son starving to death in the pigsty. Mercy would have been come back. Yes, you can be a part of our household as a servant. Because that's what, that's what the, the prodigal son remembered. He remembered in the pigsty longing to eat the pods and the, the junk that the pigs were eating. And he said, Do you, it said the, um, Jesus said he came to his senses. You know, when I was first starting out, I, that was, it still is one of my, the, the favorite story. It's the whole gospel in one parable. But I, I thought, man, if we could just get people to, to come to their senses, what does it take for someone, for my friends who, think I'm crazy going to seminary. What does it take for them to come to their senses? But you know what? It says it there, but I didn't see it for a long time. When when it says, the prodigal son longing to eat the pods of his pigs, what does he remember? He thinks back to his house, and he remembers how many, how even the least of his father's hired hands had more than enough to eat. And then he came to his senses. He saw the mercy He saw the grace of his father. Are the least people in our lives being taken care of enough that somebody else notices when they're in desperation? That's how he came to his senses. And it would have been mercy for the father to welcome him back into the household as one of his hired hands because that's that's as good as the prodigal son could think it could be. But what happens, of course, we all know. He, 
the father sees his son while he's still a long way off and runs to him and throws his arms around him. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher in London 120 years ago, um, 140 years ago, ha has an amazing sermon about the prodigal son, and the title of it is God on the Neck of a Sinner. If the, if the father in the parable represents God and he throws himself on his son, that's the grace of God on the neck of a sinner, like hugging his neck. That image just gives me Holy Spirit bumps. And, you know, part of what the father was doing was protecting his son from the villagers who would have wanted to kill him for, for dissing his dad, for saying, I wish you were dead, give me my inheritance now. They had to think the father was crazy, but that's kind of what grace does in the midst of what people think. They, it looks a little crazy, grace does. And that's why people thought Jesus was crazy. But John says, we beheld his glory, full of grace and truth. Not grace or truth, or not grace instead of truth. You know, a lot of us that want just to offer the grace to people, we don't offer the real thing because we're denying something truthful about the situation. Jesus spoke of the prodigal son in grace. And he's talked about people caught in helpless situations, showing how grace abounded, like the good Samaritan. The Samaritan is the one that helped the guy. Then even from the cross, remember Jesus' prayer from the cross, Father, forgive them. What? That's not justice. That's not even mercy. That's grace. It's no wonder we sing amazing grace. Well, Martin Luther discovered that fullness of the grace and truth. The freedom that brings, the release that that brings, the forgiveness that brings. When, when you receive it through Christ, it comes full force into your life from Jesus himself, doesn't it? You can't separate grace from Jesus. And it's not just this one-time thing. Jesus wants us to have that grace and to be agents of grace, to spill it around, to let it overflow in our lives, that we become full of grace and truth. And this is what captivated Martin Luther. Grace wasn't limited to the human ideas about control, wasn't limited to the human ideas that we have about church. Though it all comes from Jesus, the word made flesh. And that's my prayer for us this week, is that we would allow God's grace, as we're diving into this, allow God's grace to reform us, that you and I could learn to live grace like Jesus by living it out, how you treat others, how you love, how you react when things are out of control. Like I said, it's much easier to act like a Christian, you know, when we think we're in control. It's much easier to act like a Christian than it is to react like one. That's where rubber meets the road when it comes to grace, when everything falls apart. And you got to think, okay, what was the main thing? Keep the main thing the main thing. How many people have ever planned a day and then the weather didn't cooperate? Whether it was going out on a boat or whether it was whatever it was. And then you got to think, grace is the ability to think, what was the goal? 
was it to actually get to the park? And sometimes you're like, well, yeah. <laughs> but if the goal was to be together with someone else, if the goal was to have a peaceful day, even if it's just you for yourself, that's the grace to remember what was the goal. Was it to get some time alone? Was it to try something new? Was it to get people together so we could enjoy one another? Here's something else about grace that is key to all of it. Grace is absolutely and totally free. It's not a commodity that the church dispenses or that the pastor passes out. I mean, hopefully the pastor's passing out a lot of grace. But one other definition, and if you take the conglomeration of what people said, which is brilliant, grace is who Jesus is. You can't separate the two. Or better yet, it's what Jesus does, which is also a part of who he is. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Grace isn't just some ethereal thing. It's got skin on. It's connected with who we are. It's the life he lived. It's the death he died. It's the grave he overcame. Romans 5.8 says, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's grace. In scripture, grace isn't something God himself gives us. It's the way God gives us himself. Let me say that again. In scripture, grace isn't something God gives us. It's the way God gives us himself. That's the difference of the spirit-filled life. Bill and I were talking about this last night. What, when you, it's not just being a good student alone. It's not what God gives us like learnings and teachings. It's what happens when, when we accept that God gave us his whole self. That's grace. It's not, some, it's not some commodity God gives us. It's the way God gives us himself. Grace is God's personal relationship with us. It goes to those definitions. I want to look at Ephesians. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts and the letter to the Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, and Ephesians. still in Corinthians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Go eat popcorn. <laughs> that was how I first learned it. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 paints a picture of what happens when you allow God's grace to knit you together with Christ himself. Are you there? Uh, chapter 2. Sorry, I never said that. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. As for you. As for you. See, grace isn't just out there. It's, it's manifest. It comes with skin on. As for you. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Whoa. Interesting, we say transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit 
who is now at work in those who are disobedient. You know there's more than one spirit, don't you? God did something powerful in my life. It was about 17 years ago. Whoa. When I went back to seminary, I went to Asbury for a, kind of a doctorate, cool doctorate thing. And we, were, we had a time to pray for, for one another. And it was my turn. And I said, help me. I, I said, I want you guys to pray for me because given the blessing of the family I grew up in, the folks that I had, um, the opportunities I had, I, feel, I just feel like I should be further along. I feel like I should have written a book by now. My, I should be growing more disciples, have a bigger church. Just wanted to do better, be a better dad, be a better husband. And then uh, uh, the wife of one of the guys in the program was in our little small group. And so then you sit down in the chair and everybody, you know, puts their ha lays hands on you. And she said, in the midst of the prayer, she, she was the one that prayed for me. And she said, Lord, help Matt realize that that voice is not your voice. And I was like, what? And I don't remember the rest of the prayer. I was asking for all this good stuff productive stuff to be more productive and she said lord help matt realize that that voice is not your voice that i should be further along in life than i am right now and all of a sudden i said what and she spoke the holy spirit's truth over me in that moment I will be eternally grateful for Jill Brew. And uh, it made, and, and I knew it, but her words being prayed over me in that moment made me realize, you know, if it's not God's voice, I don't want to mess with it. And there's not just the Holy Spirit. There are other spirits. The spirit who is at work in those who are disobedient. Look at verse 3. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. That's why we talk about unfollowing. It's just a click of a button. It's, it's the death of the Savior for us. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. The end result of sin is death. The wages, the paycheck, there is no spiritual vitality in death. Isn't it interesting that the symbol for Christianity is the cross, not the tomb? That was just a temporary residence for three days. Isn't it amazing? They didn't like hover around the tomb from then on and be like, this is the magic spot of Jesus. <laughs> the tour guides do that. <laughs> yeah, and there's two potential spots where it could be. The, the, uh, there's no spiritual vitality in death. If you're a follower of Jesus today, it's because we've received Christ. He is our Lord by the grace of God. So that's where we were headed. Like the rest, we were, by nature, objects of wrath. Then look at verse 4. But because of his great love for us, but, there's that word, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. 
even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. Incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the, work, is the gift of God, not by works that no one should boast. For we're God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You know, one of the ways to think about grace, when you think about the sun in the sky, S-U-N, um, it's really, there's the orb of gases that make up our sun. Not nearly the biggest sun in, in the universe by any stretch of the imagination. It's on the small side. But... There's not really a way that the radiation that comes from the sun, the waves that come from the sun that reach us, you can't really separate that from the sun, the rays that come from the sun. That's sort of like grace. If God is like the sun, Jesus is like the rays that reach us, but you can't really separate it from the orb of gases that is the sun. That's sort of like how grace is. It's just an extension. It is a natural overflow. You just can't help it. Like when you have good news, you just can't help but share it. That's that grace the, to want to share is a part of the message, the good news itself. And that's how it is with Jesus. By grace you have been saved through faith. That's how we receive it, like the catcher's mitt. This not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works that no one can boast, for God's workmanship. In the end, it's a gift of God that nobody can boast. The grace is the gospel. It's so rich, it's so rich and loving and outpouring that some people think it's too easy. And this is where some of us as Christians can get in trouble. Some will think it means nothing matters, live life how you want. God's grace is always there. If we're not preaching that way, we're back into earning our way to heaven. The truth is God loves you and there's nothing you can do about it. But in Romans and in 1 Corinthians and in Jude, we hear about people who abuse this. Does grace mean we can just do whatever so that we get more of God's grace? No. Romans talks about, should we sin so that grace may abound? May it never be. Over and, answer, over and over, the answer is no. There's so much more to God's grace than just forgiveness of sin. There's so much more to living the Christian life than just sin management. That's not living the Christian life. I want us to look in Jude, because this is a Bible study, and we don't look in Jude very often. It's right before Revelation. Jude, and there's, and there's not even a chapter, it's just one chapter. So Jude, verse, we're going to start in verse 3. Well, we'll start in verse 1. When do you ever get to read Jude? Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. To those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. And then he says this, 
dear friends, although I was very eager to write you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you their godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality, and they deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. It's all backwards, and they're calling it grace. It's not the cross. It's some other symbol. That's why I'm caught up in this idea that the church is always reforming now to the image of Christ in us today, rediscovering it again and again and again. And in your spiritual journey with Christ, keep your eyes open for the word grace. Keep your eyes open for the demonstration of grace because it's also in the Old Testament. Some verses in the Old Testament. Like Genesis 6, 8. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Remember, we talked yesterday when we were talking about faith, um, that Noah put his faith in God, and it was Noah's faith that saved him long before the ark ever did. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In Genesis chapter 12, in verse 3, Abraham and Sarah, God is speaking to them and and God is giving them this promise, this grace, even though they were messing up and Abraham kept pretending she's my sister. All this, like, what were you thinking? <laughs> and I'm, re -re I'm starting in Genesis. I'm reading the message um, paraphrase of the Bible, and, it, and it's really refreshing um, to plow through it like that. But Abraham and Sarah, God says, all families shall be blessed through you. That blessing is God's grace, this unmerited favor. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph is telling his brothers, what you did to me, you meant for evil, but God intended it for good. That even in, in, in the face of what you're facing, God can use that for good. And what is it that transforms our lives? What is it that transforms our troubles? What is it that transforms our transgressions? It's God's grace. Exodus chapter 4, verse 13. Moses, a murderer, is called by God. And God is going to use him to deliver his people. That's grace. Judges chapter 10, verse 16. God could bear Israel's misery no longer. And so God raises up a leader, a judge, among them, to free the people. That's God's grace. David, in committing his famous sin with Bathsheba, in Psalm 51, verse 1. Let's look that one up. Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, 
And this is after Nathan has confronted him, you know. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. That's God's grace. And then Isaiah 53. I think this is interesting because, you know, we talk about, uh, we were mentioning, interesting, the difference between sins and transgressions. Um, David Siemens has a phenomenal book. If you've never read Healing for Damaged Emotions, there's a workbook that goes with it. Anybody read it? It is that good. It's one of my top five books. It's called Healing for Damaged Emotions. And in the opening kind of preface, he talks about how... um, we carry these damaged emotions and our normal ways of coming to God don't always fix it. You know, our families of origin kind of stuff. Or, um, like when you cut open a tree in the rings of the tree, you can see good years and bad years and you can see where the tree was injured. Um, people who know how to read those tree rings. And, and we carry these wounds with us and they manifest themselves in all kinds of ways. Even though we've fully received the grace of God. And normal prayer, normal worship, normal Bible study don't always bring the healing in those wounds that we need. And, and David Siemens has this powerful line. He said, somewhere between our sins on the one hand and our sicknesses on the other hand lie an area in our lives that Scripture calls infirmities. And that's Um, S-E-A-M-A-N-D-S. He was a United Methodist pastor back, he died in the mid-late, maybe late 80s. And he was also a professor at Asbury Theological Seminary. His son, Steve Siemens, is uh, just retired, I think, from Asbury Seminary. But he was a professor um, specializing in the um, studies on the Holy Spirit. So in Isaiah 53, Verse 4, this is the suffering servant, um, a prophecy about Jesus, how we were appalled by his appearance. And, and uh, let's start in 53, verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Talking about the Messiah. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds were healed. Jesus, in his grace, didn't just die for our sins. He died for our shame. He died for our sorrows. That's the grace we're talking about. 
That's why I'm caught up in this idea that the church is always reforming now to the image of Christ, rediscovering it again and again. I want to share just um, in our final few minutes um, kind of a, an interesting way that John Wesley, 200 years after Martin Luther, who for many of us in the Armenian Wesleyan uh, Methodist traditions um, trace our roots to the revival that happened in England. And he talks about grace and, you know, if we're seeking to be renewed by God's grace, um, it's all made possible by God's grace. God's grace opens our hearts to our need and then calls us to our need and then lines us up with him once more. Solo gratia, grace alone. It's God's grace alone. And, and John Wesley um, comes up with some specific names for grace. It's all grace. It's all God's Holy Spirit coming to us. But, but John Wesley gives them different names depending on where the person is and where you are in the process of receiving God's grace. There's this grace that woos us to God before we've ever internalized it. And Wesley calls that prevenient grace. In other words, pre, it goes before us. It awakens us to our need for God. It's all grace. It's all the same thing. But based on, on the posture of the person on the receiving end, he gives it some names which are kind of helpful. So prevenient grace. If you are seeking to share Christ, if God, if God has laid a friend or a family member on your heart and you begin praying for them, to become aware of their need for God or your opportunity to share with him. Um, you don't have to feel like you're breaking new ground with that person. God's grace is gone before you. And you just meet that grace there in the life of that person. That's called prevenient grace. It woos us. It makes us, awakens us to our need for God. Now, it is grace alone that not only goes before us, but grace alone that saves us or justifies us. You know how like in a Word document you have left justification or right justification. In other words, it lines everything up to the left or the right. That's exactly what we're talking about, being lined up with God once more. It's God's grace alone that saves us or justifies us. It enables us uh, to repent it enables the forgiveness of sin to become ours as we confess Jesus as Lord, forgiving us. And that's justifying grace, the grace that now lines us up. We are no longer under the law of, of, of sin and death. We are under the law of life and love. So there's provenient grace that brings us to that moment where we then accept it. And our ability to accept it is only by God's grace. And that's what John Wesley labeled as justifying grace. But that's not the end of the story. You know, when a baby's born and new life is among us, we're not, we don't throw a party and say, we're done. You got to start caring for that baby. You have to feed that baby. You have to touch that baby. You have to love that baby and kiss that baby and talk to that baby. So when we come to this moment of justifying grace, that's just the beginning of our new life in Christ. We're not done. And that's one of the powerful things that uh, Wesley discovered. Grace alone, that's, uh, it's grace alone that brings us closer to God, that sanctifies us, that, that enables us to live under the holiness of God. 
That's what to sanctify means, to make holy. To be more and more filled with love for God and love for your neighbor as yourself. And grace alone is what does that. We're on the receiving end of it. It is unmerited that he should do that to us. But it empowers us to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's sanctifying grace. So we've got prevenient grace. We've got that, that woos us to a moment of salvation and conversion. And justifying grace is what changes us from the law of sin and death to the law of love and life in Christ. And that's, um, that leads us then to um, sanctifying grace. Now, after sanctifying grace, Wesley um, has uh, this idea that we talked about it is grace alone that assures us that we are children of God, that sustains us in the newness of this walk every day of our lives, and that's assuring grace, he called it. We can know that we are saved and that we are saved to the utmost. You don't have to wonder anymore, and there comes a moment where you just know, and that's only by God's grace. It's not by my will, and that's what um, Wesley called assuring grace. And it'll be God's grace alone that will transition us from earth to heaven. Remember, because grace, you don't separate it from Jesus and his Holy Spirit that he gives us. But that's what Wesley called glorifying grace. It's God's grace alone, the overflow, because he was full of grace and truth, that transitions us from earth to heaven, where by God's grace we'll be empowered to glorify God, the author of grace forever and ever. That's glorifying grace. Grace is not an excuse to live a spiritually lazy life. That's what's called cheap grace. Cheap grace justifies the sin rather than the sinner. Let me say that again. Cheap grace, it, when we're living with cheap grace, we're trying to justify our sin. We're justifying that rather than seeking God's justification for us. Cheap grace justifies the sin rather than the sinner. It's not an excuse to live a spiritually lazy life. True grace, on the other hand, justifies the sinner, not the sin. It's not okay. Some stuff's not okay. It's not God's best. It's risky. Some of us think it's too out of control because of this. Some of you are dealing with shame because of how your adult children are living, and it affects you. But don't morph your thinking. It's still true grace to be had for them, for them to be justified rather than the sin itself. And remember, this grace cost Jesus his life. That is the heart and the crux of it. God's grace intersects our lives wherever we are and gives us exactly what we need. Grace is ultimately a gift to be received. We're back to our definitions but to get to do a deep dive like that into what God's grace could be is exactly where we are. I'd love to close um, today's session with prayer. Would you bow your heads with me?